Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God raised up John the Baptist to be a special kind of a prophet. He, as a prophet, was actually prophesied to come previously. You see, virtually all prophecies that we see in the scriptures are centered on the work and the deeds of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he will come and that he did come, those prophecies were fulfilled, and that he'll come again on the last day. Many of the prophecies also deal with things that God's people will have to come. So, for example, the prophet Daniel prophesied of things that would happen as the Greeks and the Romans, will, I mean, the Greeks and the Egyptians would war against each other in the time between the Old and the New Testaments. Or Jesus had prophesied that Jerusalem will be destroyed along with its temple because of the unfaithfulness of God's people. So those are prophecies that involve God's people or prophecies that involve Jesus. But John the Baptist himself had been prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 and as our gospel indicates. When the angel Gabriel visited John's father Zechariah in the temple, informing that that Zechariah's elderly wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to John, Gabriel spoke of John's prophetic role as a Nazarite when Gabriel said, John will be great before the Lord. He shall drink no, uh, he shall drink no wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we describe John as a Nazarite. And let me explain to you briefly what a Nazarite is. It's not to be confused with the Nazarene, which is a person who is from the city of Nazareth. But instead, the vow of the Nazarite is described in Numbers chapter 6, which begins by saying, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. That's just the beginning of the regulation concerning the Nazarites for those who who make this vow. So Nazarite is a person who had lived during Bible times, who makes a vow to the Lord, who is set apart by God's design and by God's plan to do a specific task for the Lord. And when he is engaged in that task, he is denied certain earthly pleasures uh, during the time of the fulfillment of his vow. So that was true of Samson. It's true of John the Baptist. So God determined the task for John the Baptist, that John would be the prophet who would prepare the way of the Lord through his special ministry of calling sinners to repentance by teaching the word of God and by baptizing sinners into Christ. God raised up John the Baptist for this most important task, miraculously conceiving him in Elizabeth's old and barren womb, and God the Holy Spirit, as the angel Gabriel said, certainly illumined John the Baptist 
because by that same spirit, John leapt in his mother's womb when Mary, the mother of our Lord, greeted Elizabeth. Now, when John had begun his ministry, a delegation of priests and Levites were sent from Jerusalem by the Pharisees to question John and his ministry. And they began by asking him a simple question. As we heard in our gospel, who are you? They wanted to know how he was sent and what authority he had to baptize, who specifically he was. Those are certainly good questions to ask and good things to know. In our day, we also need to ask these same questions of pastors. Pastors need to be sent by God, given the authority from God through the Christian church to preach and be well-trained for the work of the ministry. Sadly, some go on the internet and they fill out a simple little form, maybe pay a small fee, and then they are able to print off an ordination certificate without any formal or form of training. These people are not raised up by God. They are not sent by God, nor do they have any authority when they get their certificate with no work at all on the internet. And yet, some of these people try to start churches. Many of them do so so that they can perform weddings or even officiate at, uh, at funerals and do other ministry-related tasks. Those who are doing such are playing with fire for they are doing things in the name of God when God himself did not send them. In our church body, the Missouri Synod maintains rigorous standards when raising up pastors most men who become pastors earn a Master of Divinity, and this provides confidence for congregations that the Missouri Synod pastors are truly qualified to preach and to teach. Of course, though, some men make it through the system when they should not, and all pastors still remain sinners in need of grace. No one will ever do all things perfectly. And as your experience has probably shown you, the skills of pastors all vary. Some might be more relatable or personable, while others might be smarter or others might be more organized. But the main thing is that a pastor is to be proven faithful to Christ, to direct the hearers to Jesus the Savior. And when the pastor does that which pleases God, he will not please everybody for not all Christians truly value such faithfulness to God. So, again, asking John the Baptist, who are you, by this delegation is certainly a good question. And when we ask the question of John the Baptist, who are you, we can, there's two things that I think we should also note about him. He first made it clear that he's not the Christ. He's not the prophet who is the same person as the Christ. He's not Elijah. But he came, in a sense, in the likeness of Elijah. So what we need to note is that John the Baptist, who is he? He's not the same as John the Apostle. The Apostle John, his ministry began when Jesus conducted his ministry and continued for many, many decades after our Lord's ascension into heaven. And the Apostle John 
who's a brother to James, he, this John, what he does is he writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he writes the book of, Re- the, of Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, today we're hearing about John the Baptist, and his ministry begins before Christ's ministry and ends as Jesus' ministry begins. And so John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord. His task is to call sinners to repentance, and, and, and his ministry is to show people that Christ has come. Now, we call John the Baptist, John the Baptist. You may occasionally hear some call John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And the reason for this is they want to show that John the Baptist is not the same as that certain group of people, Christians today, who deny infant baptism and the work of God through baptism. It's the denomination, Baptist denomination. John the Baptist is not that kind of a Baptist. His title as the Baptist means that John came to baptize as the forerunner to the Messiah. So in asking that question, who is John? Who are you? We need to, I think, set those things uh, straight. So calling sinners to repentance is an important task that John the Baptist has. And it remains an important task for the Christian church, for the ministry, even to our day. And when sinners repent, this does not mean that they can keep on doing whatever they please to do. And as long as they just keep on apologizing with no intention to change their lives, all will be good. It's not what it means. To repent means to turn from a sin. So instead of holding on to a sin as if that is a beloved pet, the Christian despises that sin. And he fights against that sin. We call this the mortification of the flesh. To mortify, to kill, to put to death the flesh. That we do not give in to its passions and desires. God works this first in us through our baptism. By our baptism into Christ, we are united to Christ's death and resurrection And in doing so, we die to sin, and then we rise to newness of life. Yet we can see from experience in our own lives that our flesh continues to rear its ugly head. And so God teaches what we must do. It is written in Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And God also declared in Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In the King James Version where it says put to death, it simply states there mortify, to mortify what is earthly in you, mortify the deeds of the body, kill them, for the sins of the flesh accomplish nothing. We are called upon by God to walk in his steps and be his disciples, not to walk in the ways of the world or the temptations of the flesh. 
And so we repent. We turn uh, by the working of God and we turn to Christ who forgives us of our sin and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Yet we must also recognize that calling sinners to repentance does not mean that Christians will somehow achieve perfection or that a person's temptations will go away. Sin is always knocking and trying to gain an in with you. The devil, the world around us, and even our own sinful nature are always seeking to lure us into sin. And so, as we live in this fallen world, even as we are called to repentance and lead, lead repentant lives, we will always face temptation. And in the weakness of our flesh, we will find ourselves doing the very things that we hate doing according to our new man. We, we, we will sin and we will give in to the sins that tempt us. So what am I saying with repentance? From what I first made, the point I first made, sin does not mean that we can be libertines having no regard for amendment of life, nor does it mean that we can somehow transform ourselves into becoming perfect or even really good people. In addition to calling sinners to repentance, John was preaching the word of God. And this is what should happen when the word of God is preached to the people, that they should listen intently and search the scriptures to make sure that the words preached to them truly match what the Bible says. They should rejoice that their pastor then is preaching the truth. And if they find that he's not preaching the truth, they must correct him using the Bible as their guide. Then, having heard this truth and rejoicing in this truth, they tell others of the good news that they have heard. They all desire to, gr to grow in Christian knowledge and faith. And then the pastor is called upon when people are sick or suffering and the pastor makes visits and prays with his people. The pastor is informed also of various joys that the people have. And everyone is happy with their church because everyone can come to an agreement on what God's word says and what the most excellent practices are. All who want to be a part of the church attend. Nobody skips out. All are good stewards, and they train their children in the Christian faith, and they do it well. That's what it ought to look like when sinners are hearing the word of God. How beautiful things would be if entire congregations followed this example just spelled out. But, as we know, sin keeps crouching at the door. Pride gets in the way. Personal preferences are exalted above the word and excellent practice. And many don't want to listen to that life-giving, life-saving word of God. <coughs> Excuse me. As a result, John's own ministry was not so rosy or picture-perfect. Nor was the ministry of Jesus. I guess I gotta drink some water. So it should be no <clears throat> no surprise when churches do not enjoy the level of peace that everyone would like them to have. 
Well, hopefully my throat will clear up. How then can uh, peace come about? It begins first, of course, with repentance. That's what John was sent to do. The absolution is freely given to the repentant, for Jesus died to take away all sin, and he rose to give eternal life. Also, our epistle says that peace, the peace of God guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice who is doing the guarding. God is doing this through his peace. But when we are guarding our hearts and our minds, or when we are following our own hearts, then we are not letting the Prince of Peace guard our hearts and our minds. We have removed the way of peace and we create our own barriers. Paul writes in Romans 15, there is joy and peace in believing. And we rejoice because the Lord is at hand, as we heard in our epistle, meaning we acknowledge the Lord's presence, not only to fear him, curbing the desire to do things that are contrary to God's will in the church, but also to receive him through the word and sacrament. And we keep on praying, as our epistle also states, commending everything to the Lord and doing so with much gratitude. And finally, the way of peace involves listening. Our Old Testament lesson is quite interesting. It's a prophecy concerning Jesus, that he will come and be the prophet. But the context for why God prophesies this is where I think it gets interesting. The people are worn down by the law and by the glory of God, in which he shows his greatness and his power and his might. They did not want to hear the voice of God anymore, nor did they want to see that great fire as they were encamped by Mount Sinai. And when they said, we don't want to see this anymore, God responded by saying, your request is good. And they prophesied, and then God prophesied the coming of Jesus. Our reading said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, that's Jesus, like me from among you, from your brothers it is to him you shall listen. And so we listen to the voice of our good shepherd. That is what a congregation is. It's sheep listening to the voice of our good shepherd. You see, Jesus comes as the one who brings us peace. When we all follow him, listen to him, abide in him, and walk in his ways, peace will come about. For we will be forgiving as he forgives. We will be loving as he loves. We will seek peace as he is peace. And we will work to be reconciled with our fellow man as he has reconciled us to our Father. It is a great wonder that God left his throne from above and came down from, from heaven into this sinful world in order to redeem us from all of our sin and to grant us the free gift of everlasting life and salvation. John the Baptist knew that he was unworthy to untie the sandal strap of our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet God saw it fit to have John the Baptist baptize Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. We are baptized into Christ. We have received his peace, and our identity is now rooted 
in the status of being baptized that our family is God's family. We are now counted righteous in Christ, the crucified one, for he has taken away our sin. He lives and he grants us life. What blessings we have through Christ and we receive through the ministry of the, of the faithful ministers whom God sends. Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.